There's nothing more dangerous than yesterday's success. And I focus on the windshield. I don't look in the rearview mirror. Uh, there's a reason that windshield's bigger than the rearview mirror because that's the opportunity in front. And I just have this belief. It's an absolute personal belief and desire to never go backwards in anything I do, personally or professionally, and always push myself to get better every day. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Is it weird coming back here? Like, is it weird coming back down Sand Hill? No, not at all. Does, does it give you the feels? Does it? Is it a trip down memory lane, or is this just business as usual moving forward? No, it's just business as usual moving forward, but there's a hell of a lot of great memories right next door here, I must admit, and it was an amazing journey, an amazing experience, uh, and something I treasure a lot, and I'm still uh, engaged with my partners at Sequoia and have a deep affinity for all of them. Yeah, it's a magical place, this road. It never feels like it loses its luster every time I drive down it. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I agree with you. Listen, I never ventured to be a venture capitalist, so the fact that I worked on Sand Hill for seven years is pretty special. You always hear about it. Yeah, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania, so I'm not from here, but you always hear about Sand Hill Road and where all the action happens. And then, you know, I wake up one day and I decide to go work there after 30 years in my career. It was, it was a pretty uh, cool moment for sure. Honest question. Did you feel like an operator stuck in the four walls of venture capital while you were there? And I mean that in a actually very nice way, but did you feel every time you sat across the table from an entrepreneur and I could read off the list of boards that you're on, some pretty impressive boards and entrepreneurs, every time you sat across the table from, I don't know, Eric at Zoom or you pick your board, gosh, am I sitting on the wrong side of the table? Did you ever ask yourself that? I don't know if I asked myself that exact question, yeah. but I knew I missed being in a servant leadership role and being an operator. But the great news to tell you the truth is every single day I went to the office with my partners at Sequoia, the first thing I thought about was how can I help entrepreneurs grow, scale, and build their business into something that's enduring. So I felt like, although I was now a venture capitalist, yeah. I felt like first and foremost, I was an operator and I would never lose my passion for operating. And then having the opportunity to get back to a community of entrepreneurs was very special. So I never lost the flair, the desire, the excitement of operating, although I acted as a venture capitalist for yeah. those seven years. Yeah. Dude, there was a picture that has blown up on Twitter recently. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, I wasn't uh, aware of it. <laughs> in, in about, uh, you're, in a, you're in a washed out Sequoia shirt. You're wearing a beanie and you have two cups of coffee in your hand. What time is that at? Yeah, so <laughs> I, I, I didn't know until my text and email and my wife start blowing up that look at this picture, but... I have a passion for working out really early in the morning, and I went to the gym at my 5 a.m. routine, and no one else in the gym, I think one other guy out of the hundreds of people there, 
And when I got done working out, I was just walking back to my room with a coffee for my wife, who I guarantee you was asleep for myself. And I was wearing a Sequoia t-shirt and I wear a skull cap or a hat, a winter hat to work out in every morning. And I had it on. Because it's freezing when you're on your way to the gym. No, I wear it so I sweat more when I'm in the gym. And I just like to make sure I get a good sweat when I'm working out. So yeah, it was like... And it blew up on Twitter and I'm getting to this day, I think coming here, I even got one in my car. Like, what the hell is this picture of you of? You look very G.I. Joe. I like it. Yeah, it was pretty funny. And I had my jump rope because I travel with a jump rope around my neck. And uh, yeah, it was pretty funny. But obviously I didn't know they were doing that or putting that on Twitter. I didn't expect that. That wasn't a reason for my dressing or looking like that. It looks looks good though. It looks good. You you travel with a jump rope? I always have a jump rope because it's something you can do. You can run and you can jump rope and you can do other exercises, <laughs> even Are if there's serious? not a gym. So I always have my jump rope. I just put it in my suitcase. Yeah. That's actually a pretty good idea. Kind of nuts, but a pretty good idea. <laughs> have you ever jump roped in the airport? Uh, I haven't done that. Okay, no, okay. I have not done that. And you wake up crack of dawn every day to get a workout in? I do. And you wear a beanie to sweat more? <laughs> Tell me about this. Yeah, I've uh, for probably 20, 25 years now, at least, I get up every morning somewhere between 4.30 and 5.30, seven days a week to work out. It just gives me a great start to the day. It gets my endorphins firing. It gets me fired up. It's my time. And when my children were little, I never wanted to take away from any family time and come home at the end of the day and work out or anything. So I always did it in the morning so I could preserve my time with my wife and my children. And to this day, now I'm an empty nester. I still do the same thing. I get up early every morning, set my gym temperature to 88 degrees so it's nice and hot. Put my uh, winter hat on and I go in and work out seven days a week. What are you thinking about when you're working out? Do you have clarity of thought? Are you thinking about work? Are you thinking about nothing? What's going through your head when you're doing it? The majority of the time I am thinking about work. I'd say 75 to 90% of the time I'm thinking about work. I don't listen to music. It's just me getting a very strenuous workout and it just gives me clarity of thought, makes me think about, you know, business strategies, what I have to do, people, everything associated with business. And that's just my time and there's no interference and some of my best ideas over my 36-year career have come from me working out. And it's something I really enjoy. And it helps me set the day off in a really good direction. And it gives me energy. And do you go music or no music? No music. Nothing. nothing not, no ear. The only thing I have on is sometimes I have TV. I watch CNBC squawk. And sometimes I flip back and forth to ESPN just to catch up on the day's sports activity since I'm a sports nut. Or the other thing is I just watch squawk to see what's happening in the world so I'm better educated on all things uh, business related. I had Mike Clavel on. Do you know Mike? I do. I yeah. know Mike well. Um, I had the good fortune of having him on my team when I was at uh, VMware. He ran APJ for me. And wow. he traveled so much. I told him one day he's got to come home. And I put him in America's role. And to this day, we're super close friends and have a tremendous amount what of respect. A hum- for what Mike. a human being. Great guy. He was reflecting to me about his thinking time happens during his runs. And he's equally as religious about the runs as you are about the workouts. And he's like, you know, Jubin, probably my top five ideas ever have been on my runs. 
that's definitely the case for me. And and by the way, Jubin, I've been on plenty of runs with Mike all around the world, including one time in Tokyo, where we got completely lost. We had a big meeting coming up, and we couldn't figure out how the hell to get back to our hotel. It was a funny story. Um, so I know Mike well. He's a great man. Can I just give you one reflection that I've had as I've been researching and studying you and getting to know your family and everybody else? The yeah, thing that please. keeps hitting me over the head is this idea that none of this ever gets to your head. None of it ever feels bigger than it is to you. I was talking to Chris Degnan, who you also know quite well. And I was talking to Degnan because I'm flying up to Seattle tomorrow to chat with some people. And he's like, who else do you have on? Anyone exciting? And I said, well, actually, Carl's coming on. And he said, ask him about the Floby. Is that what it's called? <laughs> this, this is a haircut. This is, this is you giving yourself your own haircut. Wow, and, Jubin, you've done your research and homework. It's, it's, it's been embarrassing, but yeah, I tell people the only person who's cut my hair in the last 25 years has been me. I, I cut my hair. I know it sounds crazy when I say it, I think it sounds crazy, but I, I cut my own hair with a Floby, which is basically a vacuum system to cut your hair. I know it's funny, and even as I sit here and tell you that, I'm like, man, that sounds so silly, but... I saved a lot of time, a lot of money, and it seems to work. You grew up in Pennsylvania, seemingly from pretty humble beginnings. It feels to me like that kid in Pennsylvania has never actually left you. That's the feeling that I continue to get. It's that every person that I talk to is almost like trying to find something, anything, and they can't, some flaw somewhere. And obviously, everyone has their own things, but throughout this process of getting to know you from the sidelines, you've just had such incredible jobs, such big jobs. And every time I still feel like you're the kid from Pennsylvania, that just warmed my heart. That gave me hope that there's people that can accomplish what you have and continue to do while still having this incredible sense of grounding and humility that um, I really admire. Thank you, Jubin. That that means a lot. We could talk about a whole bunch of stuff today, but to be honest, all of the other things, a lot of it is superficial and you just do. But what you just articulated uh, about me is what warms my heart. I'm very lucky. I'm a blessed man. I grew up from humble beginnings in Pennsylvania. And I always tell people, I know where I came from. I know where I'm at. And I absolutely know where I'm going. And I want to be that same person across that entire journey. And, um, being humble and grounded and, and living a life of humility is one of the most important things I can do for me and my family, despite whether it's personal or professional success. But I will never forget where I came from, and that's the most important thing to me. I noticed when you walked in, there's literally a bracelet on your wrist that says grounded. Yeah, I wear it every day to remind myself and my family primarily that we always have to be grounded. Like everything Everybody we've been given Everybody in your family is, wears that? Yeah, they all have a bracelet. I bought them all a bracelet. They don't wear it every day uh, as much. You know, I wear it every day. But it's just to remind all of us how lucky we are and fortunate of the life we have. And it's because of uh, other circumstances. And um, in living out here in the Bay Area, in the Silicon Valley, it's a different world from Pennsylvania. And I don't want them to forget where they came from. It doesn't mean they can't be driven, motivated, and have drive for success in life, just like I do, but just remain grounded in all you do and what you say and how you treat others is super important to me. When you were growing up, 
What was conversation like at the dinner table? The reason that I ask is because I think very formative times in children's life are at the dinner table. I think they learn a lot about the values of a family at the dinner table. Sometimes those are the questions that you might ask them. Sometimes those are the questions that you and your partner might be asking each other or the conversations that are happening. But it's always struck me that if you're privileged enough to have a dinner table where everyone gets to sit down and be together, there is a lot of learning through osmosis that happens. And one of the consistent themes and patterns that I've seen with almost all of my guests is many of the conversations at their dinner table shaped their values growing up. So it's one of my favorite questions. And I wonder, what was what was it like for you in Pennsylvania with your folks? Most nights we'd had dinner together as, you know, I became a teenager. My sister and I, it was just the two of us, my parents. The dinner table activity was less and less just because we were super active, both of us, and in a lot of different activities, primarily sports. So they became less active. But, you know, the focus on the family was always first and foremost. My parents were super middle class, but they were always there uh, for us as their two children. They never missed a sporting event. They were always asking how we're doing in both our, our you know, athletics and, and our education. And it was just a normal conversation, right, uh, amongst the family. And, you know, the one thing that was constant was we never missed talking about the importance of family. You know, you get a lot of friends in life, you get a lot of jobs, you get a lot of titles, you make a bunch of money, and all of that can come and go quickly, but your family should never come and go, and it should be together forever. If you're fortunate enough and blessed enough to have a family that has that dynamic, it's a pretty special thing. So we spent a lot of time talking about the importance of family, and to this day, Unfortunately, both my parents have passed and gone to heaven, but I'm still close to my sister and spend as much time, at least on the phone with her, that I can. And that focus on the family is now, quite frankly, what we do, including my dinner last night with the three kids home from college and my wife. We spent a you know great dinner having pizza and, and a little bit of a dad conversation on things that were really important to me and that I wanted to relay to my family while they're home from college. Where did this achievement come from? Were either of your parents this achievement oriented? And maybe achievement could be in terms of the gym, just this drive. Did that yeah. Come from, did that come from, from your folks? It, it definitely came from my folks. Uh, if I'm honest, my father, he, I think he just barely got out of high school, went to the army to serve, came back. And his first job, uh, his real first job was working for a company in New Jersey. Uh, we were, you know, I was born in New Jersey and then lived, you know, after four my the rest of my life in Pennsylvania. But my father worked at a place called Hercules. And Hercules in, in New Jersey is a place that makes dynamite and powder and explosives. And that's where he worked. And I think after one or too many accidents, he decided he was going to do something and in a, in a weird way, coming full circle to today, he was an entrepreneur. And I think when I was three or four, he decided to move his family to Pennsylvania, not knowing a lot about business. And he bought a soft ice cream stand. And he opens a soft ice cream stand in the Poconos of Pennsylvania. And, you know, at the time, he didn't realize you can't sell ice cream in the winter. So he had to figure out what to do in the winter to support our family. And he got into uh, Christmas trees. So we started planting and harvesting Christmas trees to make money over the December month. And so he had soft ice cream and like a Dairy Queen in the summer. And we sold Christmas trees in the winter. And I just look back at his work ethic, his drive, 
And then you used to tell me, the only reason I do this is for you, son, and your sister and your mother, right? It's driven me to make sure I can give them everything I can. No college education, him or my mom, but they were just driven people and motivated. And I think a lot of that has been passed on to me. And there's no doubt I'm driven and motivated. Uh, Maybe sometimes a little bit too much, but it's definitely come from them. When you say too much, how so? Too much at the expense of other things in your life? Um, I think too much in the expense that uh, I'm pretty hard on myself. And if I don't feel like I'm doing the best right for not necessarily me, for others, it really bothers the hell out of me. I'm getting better, if I'm honest. Now, in my 36 year of my working career, I'm getting better at uh, being a bit more balanced. I really run hard and fast and start at that 4.30 every morning and I'll go to midnight and go you know, a week or two at a time on four or five hours of sleep a night and just because I'm so driven. And I don't think that is always healthy and the best thing. While it feels good because you feel like you're accomplishing a lot, I don't think you're getting a rejuvenation or recharge that you need. So I think sometimes my drive can be a detriment because um, it can take its toll on you. And also, again, in reflection and now becoming, you know, more one of the senior statesmen in our business, if you will, I also have to be cognizant that not everyone potentially can or wants to run at the pace I do. Meaning they don't care like you care. I don't know that they don't care. Listen, I just have a high work ethic and a high drive uh, for everything in life. I strive like hell to give more than I get, and I push, push, push both myself, but I got to be careful I don't push others and expect the same from them at the same time. Have you ever been given feedback that you should push less? Has there ever been coaching given to you that you should quell your drive and ambition? No, I haven't been told that necessarily, but I have been told, and this is, again, part of my self-reflection, knowing enough about myself at this point, do know that I can't expect others to work or run at the same pace necessarily that I do. And quite frankly, there's many paths to success, and my style, I think, has worked for me in my life and my career, but there's also many other ways to get and accomplish the same, if not greater results than I have. So I just have to be more aware of it and not set expectations on others that I would uh, force upon myself. Totally. I set very high bars for myself. In most ways, they're relatively unachievable bars because as soon as I get bumping up against the bar, it moves. And I've talked about this a lot on the show, but I, I feel like I live in the gray area between my current state and my desired future state. And in some ways, that can just be very a frustrating place to live because, to your point, you're never really letting yourself off the hook. There's never really winning or achieving because it feels like it's almost always just outside of your grasp. Maybe the reflection that you had about, yeah, sometimes I can beat myself up too hard. Is that kind of what you meant? Yeah, I think that's a good analogy or assessment of what I'm saying. I just, listen, I just have a high drive. I'm driven by my family. I'm driven by, you know, the impact I have on others. And I just also, I have this fundamental belief. I never want to go backward in anything I do in life. I always want to be going forward, right? The first rule of survival is super clear. There's nothing more dangerous than yesterday's success. And I focus on the windshield. I don't look in the rearview mirror. Uh, There's a reason that windshield's bigger than the rearview mirror because that's the opportunity in front. 
And I just have this belief. It's an absolute personal belief and desire to never go backwards in anything I do personally or professionally and always push myself to get better every day. When you were in high school, how important was it to you and your folks to go to college considering neither of them went to college? It was pretty important. Obviously, they wanted to see us get a a college education. And the truth of the matter is my amazing sister, who was a three-sport athlete in Pennsylvania, went to states in three different sports between track and field, gymnastics, and her team won a state championship in field hockey. She started out college but ended up not finishing. And and then it was my turn. And uh, I started out in, in a four-year college on a wrestling scholarship, a uh, Division One wrestling scholarship. And um, halfway through my first year, I decided that wasn't the right thing for me. Not a lot of people know, but uh, I, I came home, told my parents I was going to not accept any longer the wrestling scholarship, which means a big portion of my education was free, and I was going to go to a trade school called DeVry University. I left uh, my amazing college in Pennsylvania on a wrestling scholarship and went to DeVry and earned a two-year electronic certificate, not even a degree. So I have a two-year technical certificate. So there's days that I reflect back and say, man, I wish I would have got my four-year degree. I wish I would have stayed with it and finished my wrestling career. And then there's other days I look back and reflect and say, wow, how lucky am I, how blessed am I to accomplish what my family and I have on a (laughs) two-year technical certificate? You know, I tell that story a lot because I think it's important about you know, when we talk about drive and determination and just an absolute desire to find success and having a great attitude to ultimately determine your altitude in life, it's an interesting story that I tell. And people all scratch their heads and say, wow, how the hell did you do what you're doing with only that type of educational background? Um, but I'm proud of it. What compelled you? Something must have compelled you to leave a four-year university you are an amazing wrestler. You're selling yourself short. You're in the Wrestling Hall of Fame. You're an amazing wrestler. You had a wrestling career ahead of you. You had a scholarship. Parents didn't come from that much money, and so a scholarship meant a lot to you all. And then you didn't go to another four-year school. You went to, to DeVry. What really pushed you? So at the time, my sister's boyfriend, he went to DeVry. And I saw him, like I didn't have any real deep understanding of computer science or electrical engineering or anything or really anything technology related. I was going to school for business and hotel management because my parents were in the food business. And after they had their, you know, soft ice cream stand, they were getting into, you know, other types of restaurants and owned delis. They were always in the food business. So I'm like, all right, that's cool. That's what I want to do. But then I saw my brother-in-law, who, you know, who I was obviously very close with, went to this two-year tech trade school, get out and start making really good money. And I thought, wow, that seems really interesting. It seems like a good field to get into, maybe this technology field. And that's what made me think, wow, I should go uh, check this out. You know, wrestling's a brutal sport. It's a disciplined sport. I mean, it's hard as hell. I'm thinking, wow, how could I achieve my wrestling aspirations, but yet go and figure out something uh, on the professional level, ultimately? And that was me joining 
this school called DeVry and uh, still wrestling on the side, but not nearly as much as I would have in college. But it was really my brother-in-law at the end of the day. I saw him and his success. Wow. That's unbelievable. So you graduated. They send you a e-certificate? No, we, we actually had okay, okay. <laughs> a little bit more. I got an actual physical certificate and we had a ceremony where my class graduated. DeVry now is a big university and they have four-year degrees and they have master's degrees. I mean, they have PhDs. I think it's a really good technical school, but at the time, not so much. And, you know, in Woodbridge, New Jersey, I went for 18 months and then got out of school. We had a uh, graduation where they gave you a certificate and said, you know, you went to school for two years. Good luck. And I got my first job right out of, you know, college. And your first job was as a systems engineer, correct? Actually, my very first job, I was a field service engineer where I was implementing and supporting and servicing and maintaining a PBX or phone systems. This was, I think, in 1987. So I was, you know, in the pre-sale side of things, doing deployments and implementations of PBXs. Yeah. And then I'd say you did a few jobs, including 3Com and EMC. And it, to me, feels like in earnest, things really started to accelerate in your career at Inc. To me. Do you think that's fair? I, I think that was a really big inflection point in my career. I think it actually started earlier than that with 3Com when I was a very young, aggressive uh, sales rep for only, I was only a sales rep after being in pre-sales for probably seven or eight years. I was a sales rep for one year and a big job came up in the East Coast in New Jersey and I went for it thinking, hey, I can be a manager. I, I think I'm a pretty good leader. I think I could leverage my sports background and being a captain at a bunch of different uh, sports and different levels. And I went for it and I got the damn job and I woke up one day, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm the youngest guy in the whole area and I got to manage everyone. So I think that was the first inflection point in my career where I'm like, I got to go figure this out. And then from there, I had a, a very good run. Another inflection was what you just articulated, and that was the move to Inc. to me, a pure software infrastructure company that's going through an IPO. In and, the heyday, 99. In the heyday, 98, 99, 2000, something like that. It was a rocket ship. It was an incredible journey. And you joined as the VP of sales? I joined as the VP of the East, okay. to run the East Coast. Yeah. Um, a good friend of mine brought me on to run the East, and then I took over running sales for Americas until 2002. Did the bottom fall out? So it was falling out, <laughs> um, if I'm honest. We ended up selling the company. Yahoo bought a lot of the assets, but I left probably before it really bottomed out. We were living in uh, Pennsylvania. Who's we? My wife and my three amazing children. We at, were the, all... at the time, was she your wife? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, you already had three kids? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm probably older than you no, think. No, no. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I've been married now 33 years. That's how lucky I am. That's incredible. Uh, but, uh, and I was commuting for Ink to Me. I would commute to the West Coast from Pennsylvania. It was brutal. And then my wife had twins and I was still doing it. And finally I made a decision. I'm not going to do the commute anymore. What was the commute schedule like? I'd fly out either Sunday or Monday and then fly back typically on a Thursday evening red eye into Newark or Philadelphia, one of the two. And 
yeah, and I decided that's probably not good for my my health, my yeah. family, and my two young twin girls at the time. So I made a decision to leave Ink to Me and join EMC. I was at EMC. I can't believe I, this occurred, but it did. I was there for all of four weeks. So I didn't last very long at EMC, and it had nothing to do with EMC, which is an amazing organization. Uh, but I, I left there because I was introduced to a lady named Diane Green in 2002 in a company called VMware. And they said they think they have a product that's ready for commercialization, and we think we can grow this into a, a decent-sized business. And I met Diane through the guy who was running sales at the time, who I had worked with at Inc. to me. And I, uh, I remember meeting Diane and I said to myself, wow, if they can do what they say they're going to do, I think I can build a go-to-market organization around it. And I then immediately said to myself, how am I going to tell Anna that I'm going Your to wife. work for a California-based company after only working for an East Coast-based company after three weeks? And as my wife always does, she's like, Whatever you want to do, I will support you. We're in this together as long as our family always comes first. And I said, that'll always be the case. So I, I left and joined then VMware in 2002. When you were having the deliberation with your wife, how much doubt did you have that this was the right decision? I mean, you were four weeks out of the job at Ink to Me after four years of literally flying yourself to, you know, not feeling so good anymore. Did you kind of kick yourself like, gosh, this is like where the drive to a fault type thing where I, I ask myself if I'm putting myself in your shoes, really, Carl, you can't help yourself. Huh? You just can't. Is that, did that inner monologue ever happen? You know, I definitely talk to myself a lot, if I'm honest, <laughs> even when I worked at, it's, you know, even when I worked at EMC for those four weeks, I was commuting, driving literally uh, from Pennsylvania to New York City, two hours each way, every day, five days a week for those four weeks because the office I was based at in New York. And I would do it. And I had a lot of drive time thinking to myself, you know, first, it really bothered me, if I'm honest, to leave a company after four weeks. I had a tremendous amount of respect for the folks at EMC and the opportunity they gave me. And today, they're still some of my best friends. So I was really questioning my integrity a little bit after four weeks. At the same time, my drive was telling me, this is an amazing company. Now, it was early, but I felt like they had amazing technology, very disruptive technology that could actually create a new category in infrastructure, software, and hardware. And I said, I just don't want to pass that up and take the chance again. And I just committed to myself before I committed to my wife, I will find a way to make it work and make sure that I'm always there for her and the twin girls at the time before the job. And I found a way to do that. Again, I think this is the long days, long nights that I put in. It's mm -hmm. my drive. Once I make a commitment, I'm always going to keep it. And it worked out well. But there's no doubt I, I talked to myself a lot during those uh, days thinking about the transition. And no option was on the table to move the family west at that point? So when I started now at VMware, I could have day one. I could have moved west, but I didn't uh, for probably, trying to remember back, uh, four years. So even with VMware, I started to commute, you know, from Pennsylvania out here to the west coast and take the red eye back on Thursday nights and land. And 
we eventually obviously came out uh, just because by the time we moved out here, I also had a son who was a year younger than the twin girls. And with three little ones, we just decided the best thing would be to come out here and be here uh, full time. How big was VMware when you joined? Oh, geez. I think there was a couple hundred people. I think the majority of them were all in engineering. There was a couple inside sales reps and I think one outside sales rep. And the first year they were doing, you know, five or 10 million, maybe. Very small. But that's why I joined to try to build out the go-to-market business. When did you realize that you had a tiger by the tail? When did you realize that, yes... This does exactly what is advertised. And boy, is that a magical, magical thing for people. I think it was probably a couple of years in. It took a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, if you think about what we were doing, I remember going and having a lot of CIO meetings and telling everyone, why don't you take those 10 or 20 servers, each running one application and consolidating them and put them on one server? And they're like, yeah, that's not going to work. And oh, by the way, you want to do this on an x86 architecture with these little pizza box servers. This is what we do on the mainframe. We do partitioning and logical partitioning on mainframes and big Unix servers. But we're not going to do that on x86 servers. So we got uh, a lot of that's very fun and nice technology, but it's never going to be prime time in We just had the conviction that one day everything in the data center will ultimately be virtualized and we were going to push hard until we could figure out how to crack the enterprise. We had a desktop product that did, you know, okay. It was for personal productivity gains for allowing people to run multiple operating systems on one PC, but never a data center app. And for a couple of years, it was hard sledding. And then uh, finally, we figured out a go-to-market motion that was... We were focused on doing proof of concepts or proof of values because we knew we could turn that slideware into software or we would tell people this will work exactly as advertised if you put it in and try it. And we really started to hit our stride when people would put it in and see they could consolidate five or 10 applications onto one server And the ROI of that solution was just so powerful and so strong, it was hard to deny or not to think about it more broadly. Mm. And then we made this acquisition of a company, I'll never forget. This was one of those, to your points, when did we really see this inflection? We bought a company, we called a capacity planner, where we would go in and put this software in a company's infrastructure and it would look at your servers and see how much CPU, how much disk, how much memory they were using. And we could do this across a thousand servers. And then we'd come back to the executives and say, here you go. Just an ROI calculator. Oh, here you go. By the way, you're running a 7% utilization across those thousand servers. We think we can save you millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars if you put this software in and we'll prove that it works. And then that's when the inflection started to happen. And then we had a couple features that we brought to market that just kept building on that inflection and helping us accelerate the growth. What was your job when you joined? I was a VP of the US. Okay. And then I went and to run all the worldwide sales. So I started as VP of the, uh, I was running sales in the US, which we were a US company. Yeah. At the time. So you own the number basically. 
I owned a pretty big part of it, yeah. yes. But we then went very quickly and hired, you know, someone in Europe, a, a peer of mine, you know, but I eventually, after a year or two, moved in to run global field operations and we built out Europe, built out the rest of APJ and and then it was an amazing 14 and a half Yeah, year eventually journey. became the COO and president. Can you hearken me back to the days, the four years when you're going back from Pennsylvania to VMware? The company is starting to go bananas. I can't imagine the immense responsibility that you felt to the company and to the employees to deliver on this potential. One of the things that I try and demystify on the show is that when you're a part of these incredible rides, it is very hard. It's hard to talk about that, but it's very hard. And it's hard for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is the pressure to fulfill the potential of this business. When you're going back and forth, hiring people, I'm sure you're working on the red eyes, going home, you know, you're doing every, you're getting, you're squeezing every last ounce of juice that you can out of your time. And then you're going home. What was that like? Tell me about the self-talk at that point where you have three little kids at home, a wife that you promised you would make good on, an opportunity of a lifetime that you probably knew at that point was real, responsibility that you've never seen before in this company, which also means responsibility over a group of people that you've never really had, revenue that's at least tripling. I mean, probably way more. What was that like? Now that you say that, I haven't thought around or sat around and thought about it a lot, but you say that it was a hell of a ride. It was a hell of a journey. You know, you're kind of in the middle of it, so you don't really stop and think about it. You're just, once you see the opportunity, you try to take advantage of it and exploit it, but also always remembering, like, it's just a job. It's a, it's just a company. I always would have to come back and make sure I grounded myself on my core values in life and make sure that I'm there for my family. But at the same time, I did realize this opportunity that we have in front of us, I may never experience again. And you have to also take advantage of it. And the other piece was you hired a lot of people. When I joined, we had 200 people. When I decided to you know, make my next transition, we had 20,000. And you bring a lot of people along on that journey with you. And you have a sense of responsibility and duty to them and their families. So this is why, you know, I probably make it harder on myself because, you know, I want to make sure the people that you bring on your team to help serve the company and the customers that you have to be there to support them. And that's sometimes it's super rewarding, but also sometimes it's super stressful because you feel like you have a duty and obligation to all those people. But it was an incredible journey, an incredible ride, and it's because of the people I got to work with every single day. So hiring was a critical component of all of that. So, it, you know, I will tell you, it was super hard. We were growing at one point. We were the fastest growing software company ever. <laughs> and you'd wake up and every job I had there, if I'm very transparent and honest, was my first job of that scale or size. So every day you'd wake up and it was new. And I used to tell people all the time, like, I've never done this. And there's days I'd wake up like, you know, there's no troubleshooting guide or instruction guide on how to do what's next. You just kind of did it. And it just tells you so much about if you have the drive and desire and will 
Sometimes it can outperform skill because I didn't have the skills, but I figured it out. And when your back's against the wall, that's when the, the best of you can come out. And, and that's what I did every day because every day was a new day and it was bigger than anything I'd ever done. Did you tell people that? Like, hey, All the time. I have no idea how to do this thing. I have no problem telling people even today, I've never done this. I don't know. I think that's a great attribute of a leader, recognizing what you're good at, what you do know, and what you don't know. And I have no problem back in the day standing in front of, you know, a sales kickoff conference with, you know, five or 10,000 people saying, this is the first time I've ever done this, but we're going to do this together. And I promise you, I'll figure it out. It's incredible. When it was all said and done, by my count, you had almost 250,000 miles that you were flying a year, which is insane. You did the CFO job, the COO job, the president job. You're shaking your head. Yeah, because you brought up the CFO story. Um, what is it? Yeah. You're so, the CFO of VMware. Yeah, so uh, we were going to a CEO transition from Paul Ritz to Pat Gelsinger. And, um, you know, I was the president and CEO of, for all the CEOs. I was never the CEO. I was always the president and CEO for all of the three different CEOs I worked for. But we were going through this transition and I was in my office one day, and at the time, we announced a Paul-Pat transition, but it wasn't going to take place for, you know, 60 days or so, because Pat was second or third in command to EMC, and Paul was going to spin out and start a new company of some assets we had at VMware called Pivotal at the time. So we had this transition period, and I was in my office thinking, all right, we got to hold this thing together. You know, employees with change are always on the edge. And I was sitting in my office and the CFO at the time, a great friend of mine, Mark Peak, walks into me and says, Carl, can you have a minute? I'm like, yeah. And he says, I need to let you know that I'm leaving. And I'm like, you're leaving? What do you mean? He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take a new job and we're a public company. So you have to announce pretty quickly once they inform you. And it had to happen pretty quickly because he was leaving to go work at Workday. As their CFO, because he was on the board. And I'm like, okay, wow, we have no CEO or we're in transition. Now the CFO quits. And I'm like, this is just crazy. Next day, I come in the office. True story. The chief accounting officer, our number two in finance, our CAO, comes in my office and says, Carl, I need to let you know that I'm quitting I'm like, okay, you're quitting. And she said, yeah. I said, well, can you share with me what's going on or where you're going or why? And she said, I'm going to work day. I'm like, okay. So now our top two in finance <laughs> are now leaving. Third day, same week, sitting in my office, the guy who ran IR, Investor Relations, who interfaces Come with the on. street, comes in the office and says, Carl, I'm leaving. I'm like, where are you going? I'm going to work day. So in a three-day period, all of our top finance people decide they're leaving to go to work day. And great for them, work day was going public, right? So they had to get in before the IPO and set it up. And so they all leave, which has me then calling the board and calling Joe Tucci and at the time calling Paul Rich and Pat Gelsinger, who's in the middle of this transition, like, what the, what are we going to do here? And they're like, we got to go search for a CFO. 
And I'm like, yeah, we do. So we decided to open up a search for a CFO. But as you can imagine, since we're in a CEO transition, it was a hard recruit for me to do, right? I'm doing the recruiting for it. <laughs> but they wouldn't report to me, they report to the CEO. So, you know, I'm going through this process and finally, you know, I talked to everyone in the board and I'm like, well, we got to do something. And they're like, yeah, you not only know, own a number now, Carl, you have to report it as a CFO of a $50 billion public company. And this is where I'm honest. I'm not a public company CFO. I'm like, okay. And it was probably the toughest, uh, one of the toughest moments or few months of my career, but it also was looking back the most rewarding to be able to get through that manage and run the finance organization and do earnings calls for a few quarters myself and during this transition until we could bring on a new CFO. I love all three of those people still to this day. And obviously they're I love work, work that they they're no longer day? there. Well, and now they, you're the CEO. They are day. still there in different capacities, but not in full-time operating roles. You're uh, kidding me. Yeah. Can you share what was hard about those few months of being the CFO? So it really made me understand and think about business in a much broader context. You know, I always owned the number. So I was all focused on delivering the number, the bookings, but then how you convert that into revenue, how you talk about it with the street and your investors, how you engage with them, how you do earnings calls without a CEO. Like it was just everything was, like I said to you, everything was always new to me. And I just, you know... I listened, I learned, I asked questions. I'm a huge preparer for anything I do. I prepare deeply for everything, any engagement. Um, and I just, it was a grind every single day over those, you know, six months. But what did that look like? Can you tell me? Like, how'd you learn? How did you learn to do that? I'd ask people, I'd study, I'd learn, I'd leverage other in, others in the company and the, you know, in the business. Uh, I'd leverage the board. You know, but when you get on an earnings call, there's no one to leverage. It's you. Uh, you get on all the callbacks. It's you. Again, this is where you don't ever underestimate people who are driven and motivated and have a fear of failing in what they can achieve. And I think that's how I got through it. Amazing. The obvious question to me, there was three CEOs while you were there. You were basically holding the ship together across all of those gigs. At some point, did you ask yourself like, gosh, can I go take that job? Those conversations had to have happened. Yeah, so for the Diana Paul transition, it didn't happen. And quite honestly, I probably wasn't ready or prepared to take on that type. We were a public company. It was growing rapidly. VMware was, if I'm honest, one of the darlings of Wall Street in the Valley at the time. And I probably wasn't prepared, mm. uh, you know, professionally to take on that capacity. And I didn't really think about it. I didn't really, I didn't raise my hand. Um, didn't even think about it. When we were making a Paul to Pat transition, I had a conversation with Joe. But if I'm honest, it was a short conversation. I don't think, you know, at the time, I don't know that I was ready then either. You know, I forget what year that would have been, but I probably wasn't ready. So, but it didn't bother me either. Like I never woke up at any point in my life thinking, wow, if I don't become a CEO, my life isn't fulfilled. Mm -hmm. It really didn't matter. I just wanted to have impact on others and, and company and build a legacy for the company that I'm working for. So those conversations really never happened across those three transitions. And it didn't bother me at all. I felt my responsibility was 
Paul and Pat were first-time CEOs, I really took uh, a lot of pride in helping make them successful. And hopefully my success would draft off of, you know, the impact I had on them in the company at that given time. If you had one do-over, Mulligan, personally or professionally during those 14 years, anything come to mind? Like anything that kind of still eats at you today? Well, that's a great question. I'm sorry I'm pausing, but take your, nothing's take all the time in the world. come to mind. It was just an incredible journey, an incredible experience, uh, personally and professionally. And uh, VMware gave me and my family more than I could ever ask for in life. And I'm grateful and thankful to this day. And I can't think of anything I do over. I'm sure, listen, I made a lot of mistakes, I'm sure. Is, a, is there something that came to mind that you didn't want to say? No, no, okay. there isn't. Do you have regrets in general? Going back to the conversation around the rear view mirror versus the... Um... Very, very, very few. I have, I definitely have a big regret, but not a lot of them. That makes sense considering your forward orientation. Yeah. I mean, I do a lot. I reflect on the past and things I could have done differently or better, yeah. um, which helps me improve as a person and as a professional. Can I ask what the big regret is? Sure. It was during those years at VMware, my parents lived in Florida. You know, my dad got pretty ill and I probably didn't realize how quickly his health was deteriorating. And I would always tell myself I got to get there more. And it was at the end of uh, one of our fiscal years, the end of a calendar year, I knew my dad's health wasn't good. I talked to him on the phone I kept telling myself, man, I got to get down there. Like, I got to get there like as soon as I can. And then I kept saying to myself, no, I can't let the company, the people, the shareholders down. I got to make sure I deliver this quarter. I didn't end up going to Florida. And uh, while we delivered a, a solid quarter for the company, I was not there with my dad during his last days. And um, it's a huge regret. It eats at me every day. It drives me now to make sure I'm doing things that make him proud. Um, but that was a really bad mistake I made. Uh, and it's something I, I just struggle with every day. But I know he's in heaven looking down, and hopefully I'm making him proud of focusing on my family first and my career second, and hopefully in his eyes doing a good job at both. I appreciate sharing that. Do you think that was part of the catalyst, number one, to ultimately leave VMware, and number two, to do all the things, all the effort that you go through with your family, from the bracelets to the dinner tables to the red eyes? I just can't imagine those two things are not very tightly coupled. Uh, there's no doubt they're tightly coupled, right? I mean, he instilled me, I said this earlier, the importance of family. And until this day, as we sit here, it's still the most important thing in my life. I hope that none of my children or me or my wife ever have that situation happen again. And as long as I continue to t teach them the importance of that family, they'll never miss the opportunity to be with a loved one before they pass to heaven. Um, so hopefully, yeah, that taught me a tough lesson, but he taught me a lot. So I give it back now, uh, no doubt. Um, and it's what 
to this day still drives and motivates me to make him happy and be proud of me and how I live my life and how I, despite finding a little bit of professional success, I remain humble and grounded just like he always was. It's amazing. Like You still really regret that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can't get it back. Yeah. Uh, but we're here on earth for a short time. And if you believe in eternal life, my life with him is going to be forever. So I'll see him again at some point when I'm called to. Thank you again for sharing that. How long into VMware was that? Tail end? No, early on. And were you able to recalibrate and refocus from that? I imagine it was obviously incredibly difficult. It was just, you still wear it 20 years later. So I can only imagine what it was like then. How did you then rebuckle back into the chaoticness that is work in VMware? Yeah. So I um, and by the way, I hope you don't mind me asking about no, this. No, it, it, it's fair. It's it's fine. No problem. I made a commitment to myself and how I live my life uh, was to transition from a life of success to a life of significance. And when you make that transition in life to focus on impact to others and not focus on success. What I can tell you is the amount of success you have on the other side is way more rewarding, way more personally impactful than if you just focus on a life of success alone. So I made a transition, and to this day, I live my life through significance and impact of others and not on myself or my own success. And when you make that shift, beautiful things happen. Yeah, living a life of significance is way more fun and rewarding than living a life of success. Can you draw a distinction between the two? How do you think about those two things differently? Well, as the older I've gotten and in these different roles that I've now had over the last 20 years, it's very clear, it's super clear, it's crystal clear that my success can never happen without the impact of others. And if I focus on others and significance and impact on them and live a true life of a servant leader, I will ultimately have success without focusing on it and it's a lot more rewarding. And this is you know, something I've learned through my sister and have studied a lot about servant leadership and servant leadership, a lot of people speak about it, but if you ask them, they all have a different definition. But if you just break it down to the fundamentals, the very first word of servant leadership is to serve. And if you serve others, you should and can be a great leader. Uh, Most people say they have to be out in front, be an out in front leader. I think you need to serve others, which means you're behind them and guiding them, but you're not in front. You're coaching and guiding and serving them to find success. And when they do, when you're part of the team, your success will be defined afterward. And you feel like your channel for finding that significance is through leadership? I really do. I, I wake up every day not worrying about myself, worrying about my family first, and am I doing the right thing by them, and then worrying about you know, the company and the opportunity that's currently at hand right now. It's at Workday. I feel a, a huge amount of responsibility to serve my partner, Neil, 
uh, serve my workmates, serve our customers is a tremendous responsibility, I feel, but it's one I enjoy because I like to give. If you seek a life to give more than you get, it's pretty powerful what you get in return. You were at Sequoia for six years, and then when you jumped back into the arena, you ever worry that you lost your fastball? Did you have moments of doubt where you thought, shit, six years, it's a long time. Can I still, still, I mean, you've never even done the CEO job. Can I do this job? Can I do this job having never done the job? Can I do this job having been out of operating for six years? Did that doubt creep into your head? And you were on the board of Workday, to be clear. Yeah, I was yeah. I was fortunate enough to be on the board with Neil and, and Dave and the board and serve for five years mm -hmm. before I jumped back in. To answer your question, I was not worried whether I've lost the ability to serve and lead others. I never worried about that. I never worried about having the operating chops to be able to go jump right back into an operating role because I really believe my amazing seven-year journey with Sequoia was one where I spent more time in an operating role with our companies in helping them build, scale, and grow than I did anything else. So I felt like, in fact, my seven years at Sequoia, I felt like coming out of that amazing role of being a partner there actually made me a better executive and leader going back into a leadership role like Workday with Anil. I actually felt like I'd be a better leader, a better executive because I saw so much diversity across so many companies. So I actually was pretty excited to go back and try to see how I would perform in an operating role with that seven-year experience. You are on the boards of, I mean, there's 15, 16 of them, anyone from Palo Alto Networks. You are still on uh, Palo Alto Networks to UiPath to Gong to Snowflake to Zoom. Incredible. Not a bad track record as an investor. Why did you end up leaving? VMware is still an incredible company. It was definitely an incredible company in 2016. Why did you take the left turn and go into venture? Very simple. And we've talked a lot about it. My family. My twin girls were in eighth grade. My son was in seventh grade. And they were going into those high school years, which are formidable and can always be challenging. And yeah, I did, you know, two to 250,000 air miles for 10 straight years. And my wife and I decided it was time for me to get off the road, be a lot closer to home, be much more present to make sure that we got those children through high school and through college. And that was my decision. It's that simple. I wanted to make a change in transition for my family. I made that commitment. I didn't venture to be a VC. It wasn't like I wanted to become a VC. It wasn't what I was looking to do. Uh, but I knew I had to do something different. I remember going in and at the time telling Pat and telling Joe Tucci and then even Michael Dell, because we were going through Michael buying EMC and VMware that I was leaving. And I don't think anyone believed it. Uh, I probably didn't believe it myself. And they're like, why can we do this, that, and the other thing? I said, no, I made a decision and a commitment to my wife that I'm going to do something different and I'm going to be home. And then I was so fortunate to have, you know, known a number of people next door here at, at Sequoia. And they said, well, why don't you come here? And I'm like, because I'm, I'm not an investor. I'm not a VC. I'm an operator. I know what I like. And they said, you can try it, we'll try it, and let's see if it works. And 
I made that decision. I remember walking to the door of Sequoia my first day. I think I was 50. And I was the second old, second or third oldest guy in the building and the most novice, the most green investor in the building. And I had to walk through that building like anyone else and be a novice all over and learn from 20, 30, and 40-year-old people on how to learn to be an investor. And it was another great time in my life where I'm like, I got to throw everything out I've ever learned. And I just got to go in here and say, I'm no different than anyone else. Teach me. Uh, hopefully I could learn my way and make some great investments with my partners. But the one thing I knew I would be able to always go back and lean on, even in an investing role, was my operating skills, my leadership skills, and the deep network that I made with people around the world that I hopefully can bring to the companies that we would invest in. Did you ever have a VMware moment? Meaning you left Inc. to me, similar story. You gotta get you gotta get off the saddle. Family comes first. When you're at Sequoia, especially when you're sitting on the boards of some of the most historic companies ever, did you ever have moments of, I mean, eventually you did. Eventually it became workday. But, you know, earlier on, oh shit, I've seen this story before, you know, it's Snowflake or whatever it is, right? Like, oh boy, you get the itch, you know? (laughs) I think if I'm honest, all seven years at Sequoia, and I used to tell my partners this every day, there wasn't a week that didn't go by that I didn't have the itch to jump back into an operating role. It was always on the back of my mind, but I also really learned to enjoy. It was mentally stimulating. It was challenging, right, to be a VC at such an iconic iconic place like Sequoia. And I felt like it was it was a huge responsibility. It's like I always wear on my sleeve. I always feel a big responsibility to people I work with and work for. And I felt the same at Sequoia. And I just put my head down and said, I'm going to do this as long as I can. And uh, it was an amazing run. But there, I'd be lying if I sat here and said there wasn't, you know, days or weeks or years where I didn't think about an operating role. It came up quite a bit, at least in my own mind. And and with my wife, Anna, she knows, right? uh, For seven years, she got tired of me talking about it to her, about potentially going back into an operating role. She's like, will you stop talking about this and stay heads down or go do the operating role? You got to decide, but I don't want to talk about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I know the feeling. The thing that is so amazing about Kleiner Perkins or Sequoia, these places, is for a learner, there's infinite learning. There's so much horizontally to go and consume. And the ability to access people who are at the frontiers of things and domains that nobody else, you feel like it's the secret that nobody else knows about that you get to learn about first through these people, through these entrepreneurs, through these operators, through other investors. It's so cool. It just, speaking for myself, infinitely satisfies this urge to learn. And this curiosity is literally can be forever unfulfilled here because there's so much to go learn to the point where you feel dumb. You know, to the point where you feel dumb most of the time. And I actually think that great operators are learn-it-alls. To your point about VMware, what made you good at VMware? 
was your ability to learn and your desire to learn. You love to learn. And I think that there is something also to be said for that in these venture firms. Yeah, and he, I mean, I got to work with and engage with some of the smartest people in the world. Um, Do you agree with that, by the I way? I agree 100%. You're on the leading and bleeding edge of technology when you're in the venture business and you're meeting these amazing entrepreneurs who are trying to change the world, literally have an impact on the world. And that is super uh, stimulating. And But it's also challenging. To your point, there's days I'd leave meetings and I'm like, man, did I just fall off the turnip truck, hit my head and I'm stupid? I have no idea what these amazing people are talking about. But it's also then what drove me to learn about it, to dive in, to figure it out, to understand what they're thinking and why they're thinking it. But the diversity that you come across every day in that business is just amazing. Yeah, it is. So you invested in Workday? No, I was only on the board. I joined the board two years into Sequoia, which was probably uncommon if you're at a venture firm, you joined the board of the companies you invest in. But I asked my partners at Sequoia if they would allow me to you know, do another public board that we're not invested in. And we had some good dialogue about that. But eventually they said, yeah, I think you know we're okay with it. Carl, we trust you. And quite frankly, I believe it only helped me in my venture business and in being a partner with such great people there I, because it made me that hopefully much more valuable that I've seen scale, I've seen growth. Sure. And, and it was uh, what uh, you know allowed me to differentiate myself from a lot of the other venture capitalists out there. Can you tell me why it was important for you to take that board seat? When it came up, you're brand new, you know, ish. You're already, you know, the young gun in terms of experience. Obviously, you knew that there was going to be a little bit of tree shaking that had to be done to do this. It's different. Why was it important to you to join the, the Workday Board? Well, so number one, I got to know Anil, and I was super impressed with him. The founder and CEO and his, you know, co-founder, Dave. And I wanted to work with Anil in some capacity. And at this time, it was via the board, number one. Number two, it was one of the fastest growing cloud SaaS companies out there. So I thought being on that board would only make me that much better of an investor. And I'll add that much more value to the companies I work with. So I thought that was really important. And then the third thing was just for me to continue to learn a new business. I don't have any background or knowledge of a pure apps business at the time in HCM or an ERP, you know, app like Workday had. It gives me the opportunity to learn something new just at a different scale. And they were growing fast. They were one of the leaders in cloud and SaaS. It was Anil. And uh, I thought it would add value back in my full-time job, which was being a partner at Sequoia. And I think it all worked out. This is a dumb. Is it a Fortune 500 company? This is a dumb question. I should know the answer. Uh, it's it's not quite, but uh, we hope to be soon. It's a massive company, eighteen thousand employees, one point seven billion almost of revenue in Q1 alone. Last year, over six billion dollars in revenue. It's a this is a serious business and has been for a very long time, which is quite unbelievable. Can I ask you a random question? And then I want to talk a little bit about Workday. What do you think, looking back now, is the best advice? 
that people tend to give on startups and high growth companies? And what do you think is the worst advice that you think is often far too common that people give? Yeah, um, some of the best advice is just asking. I simplify things and simplify things very quickly. I often ask, is this a nice to have or a must have? When you think about the value proposition of your product and you think about building an enduring business, is there a tremendously large opportunity to build something at scale? And to do that, you need the product to be something that people or you believe they must have. It's just not nice to have. Just nice to have doesn't give you scale. You can build a nice business, but you're never going to be one of those outliers and break out and build truly, truly a durable business that can stand the test of time, number one. Number two, with founders, make sure they're self-aware. Make sure they understand what they do well, what they don't, and where they don't have the skill, make sure they know how to hire and surround themselves with people that will offset their weaknesses so they can focus on their strengths. Sometimes people can have such high IQ that they think they can do everything or learn to do everything or they're the smartest person in the room. That is very dangerous both to them and the company. Yeah, well said. When the Workday idea first came up, was it love at first sight? So, you know, over the last year at Sequoia, I had a lot of conversations with my wife, Anna. Now that we became empty nesters, all the kids are gone, about ending my career back in a servant leadership role and an operational role. And those conversations over the last year picked up a lot of energy at my house, not outside. I wasn't out in the market looking for an opportunity. I didn't have, uh, I didn't hang my shingle outside and say, oh, Carl's coming back into an operating role. I was heads down. I had some great companies that I was fortunate enough to be in and around and on the boards of, and I was focused on helping them be successful. And then this opportunity presented itself. Uh, you know, last fall when Anil and I had a conversation, initially, if I'm honest, I said, no, I'm going to stay the course. I have a pretty amazing position with my partners at Sequoia. Life's uh, good. Life is good. I was very fortunate, very blessed. I was in a good place. But every night, if I'm honest... I'd go to bed, it was on my mind. And when I'd wake up, it was on my mind that I really wanted to try to end my career in an operating role. So when it never left my mind after, you know, 30 or so days, I went back and talked to Anil and said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm ready. It's a great company. It's one I admire. I've got to know being on the board, the culture and the values at Workday are unlike anything I've seen. I want to be part of this journey and I want to take on and shoulder what is a huge responsibility to keep the Workday brand and legacy alive for David and Neil and join the company. 
And that was another very difficult decision for my wife and I, because we're empty nesters at this point. And she knows what that means. And she knows what it means. It's 110%. But it, and she in. knows me. I think that I'm only 110%. But I also committed, this is a better together type of story. And I told Neil and the board that they're not getting just Carl. They're getting me and my wife, Anna, uh, on this journey. And they were very good with it. And as long as they were good with it, I was jumping in and and going to start this journey uh, now eight months ago. And the role that you took is a co-CEO role with Anil in December of this last year with a one-year stake in the ground for December of this year where you would learn from him get your ducks in a row, get your sea legs underneath you. He would still be involved in the company in a meaningful way, just focused on product. And you would be the CEO, the sole CEO, doing the business building, if you will. Yeah, so we I joined in December, you're right, as co-CEO with Anil. And at the time of the announcement, we thought it was important for both internal, for employees and external to the market that in one year, I would move into a sole CEO role with Anil, becoming exec chair of the board. As an exec chair, he would continue to be deeply engaged and help drive and lead the product and technology organization, which is what he is doing today. And I couldn't be more thrilled or excited. And Neil is one of the, the greatest you know, enterprise software minds I've ever met. And again, this is, you know, making sure you know what you're good at. And I promise you, I can never be a Neil on the product side, what he's been done for 30 years. So I want him around as long as he is willing to continue to drive the product and technology strategy and organization. So even in January, when I have the sole CEO title or whatever the hell you want to call it, Neil's not going anywhere, nor do I want him to go anywhere. That's right. That's right. uh, Some people... I tell people, you know, so a lot of actually a lot of people think I'm crazy for stepping back in. If I'm honest, most people I talk to, it's like, what are you doing? Why? Because life was so good. Yeah. And um, so I tell people I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. And what I mean is, you know, I want to kneel around as long as I can. And, you know, a lot of people question the co-CEO thing. I can tell you eight months in, it's working amazingly well. Yeah. It's different people. We have different skill sets. There is no doubt. I tell people, I know it's a saying, but it's truthful. It's one plus one equals three here. We're having fun. And the other thing is, neither of us have an ego. We're at the point in our life, in our careers where no one really cares, whether it's soul, co, whatever you want to call CEO, it's just about making the company better each and every day, focusing on your customer success and keeping your employees happy. And however that comes about, whatever title you have, it doesn't matter. But if you achieve those, greatness can happen. And that's what we're trying to do. Amazing. You know what blueprint? I actually think you probably saw firsthand. That was a very good transition. And I used to work there. It's Palo Alto Networks. I think what they did with their founder and Nikesh and keeping the founding DNA around, I bet you, you probably learned a little bit from the way that you sat on the board, you sit on the board. I don't know, I bet, you know, with Nir and Nikesh, 
That was a good yeah, way of I, doing it. That's a great analogy. I saw Nier step into a role actually before Nikesh when we brought in Mark McLaughlin. Yes, that's right. So Mark McLaughlin comes in with Nier, amazing partnership. And then the third transition was keeping Nier around, moving Mark McLaughlin still in and around Chairman. the company to the board, yeah. right? And bringing Nikesh in. And I saw that transition work phenomenally well. And I can tell you, I couldn't be more proud and excited of, you know, the success that company has had through that transition and what Nikesh is doing there is truly remarkable. I have a, a lot of respect uh, and admiration for what he's done to take uh, Palo Alto to the next level. So do I. It's amazing to see. So the thing about venture is that it's very different in terms of the way that you organize your day, in terms of the ways that you think about timelines, time horizons, the operating rhythm. At least in my experience, it's very different in venture than it is in operating. Was it hard to get back into the groove of a day-to-day operator? Did you have to change routines and habits? Was it was that an unnatural transition at all, or was it? Did it actually feel very natural to no, you? No, it wasn't unnatural at all. It was. It's actually quite easy if you looked at my calendar. When I was at Sequoia, every day, every week, people would be like, what the hell's wrong with you? What are you doing? But I worked, you know, 12 hours a day. My assistant used to yell at me every day saying, you got to stop saying yes. You can't meet with all these people. You can't help all these companies that are portfolio companies. So my day was jam-packed every day. And fast forward to eight months ago in the transition, ever since then, my day's packed every day and I enjoy it. If I'm not busy... I actually don't feel fulfilled. I don't feel like I um, am at my best unless I have a lot going on at the same time. People thought you were crazy when you went to work day? A lot of people questioned my decision. Why would you leave? I'm biased here. The greatest venture capital firm in the history of venture. Sequoia, at this age, as an empty nester, why would you go back into the operating role? And some people called it the grind. It's because it's what I love to do. I feel like I've been called to do it. I feel like I've gained 36 years of experience to give back to others and serve others. And to do it at a company like Workday with a partner like Anil and my 18,000 workmates just presented the opportunity that I'm going to do it. I don't give a crap what anyone else thought. As long as my family and I thought it was the right thing, that's all that matters. Carl, I cannot wait to see what you do. I cannot wait. It's very exciting. It's very, very exciting. And I'll tell you, the world deserves you to be finishing your career in operating. We're better because of it. We really are. Are you hiring? Is Workday hiring? Are there any key roles that you want to use this platform to shout out? Are you hiring across the board? Tell me more. We are always hiring great people. We're always looking for great workmates to join our team all the way from an individual contributor up to the executive level. Uh, Just this week, our new chief marketing officer started. A month ago, our new CFO started. Um, You didn't want to do the job? No, I I didn't at this point. And I got, you know, what I think is one of the best CFOs in the Silicon Valley, Zane Rowe, to join. So, uh, you know, we're super excited and Neil and I and the board and everyone's excited to have him on the team. But we're always looking to hire. And I think... Even if you don't have open recs, if you can find someone that meets the culture and value system of your company and can add value, 
we're open to a conversation. If you could strip everything away and you could whittle down one or two characteristics that you would look for in someone applying, in someone coming to interview with you that fits Workday's values, that fits you, that fits what you think is a leading indicator of success in any job across any function, what, what would that be? They have to be humble. They have to have a sense of humility is super important. They have to be grounded. They have to have a high level of integrity. They have to be driven and motivated. And lastly, they have to care for others. Even if you're not in a leadership role, how you engage and treat others and how you interact with them is super critical when you're building a team. For leaders, maybe it's slightly different. You want all of those characteristics. But when I look for leaders, I look for a leader who knows how to motivate people, how to drive people, how to get the best out of them. And everyone says they love being with or around or working for motivational leaders, which most people do, including myself. But I think there's another type of leadership I look for that's more powerful than anything else, and that is the inspirational leadership. An inspirational leader doesn't push or drive their people. They pull them in. People want to be part of their organization. People don't want to let them down. So that inspirational leader gets more out of their people at times than the motivational leader. And then the third leader is the one who knows how to do both. Knows when someone might need a little push or a nudge, but is always there to inspire the troops to go achieve the best they can for the company and themselves. And I look for that in leadership because I think there are a couple of characteristics and traits that not necessarily can be taught, but they're within the person because of who they are. When you hear the word grit, what comes to mind? Me. Carl Eschenbach, what a f***ing episode. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you for your time and thank you for having me on your podcast. Incredible. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.